everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Michelle Tong. She's a public defender who is running for judge in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got to this place? Sure. Um, I am currently a public defender at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. I've been there 16 years, just this past January, this month of 2020. Um, and at least in terms of this office, I started off as a paralegal 16 years ago and was a paralegal for two years at the felony unit. Then I became a misdemeanor attorney uh, for about two years where I tried about 25 or so misdemeanor trials. Then for the past, if my math is right, 12 years, I've been a felony lawyer and I've tried another 25 or so felony trials. Um, Before I was a public defender, before law school, I basically dedicated my whole adult life to doing social justice, public interest work, community-based legal services. I started as a paralegal at the Asian Law Caucus, which is also in San Francisco, and I worked in the immigrants' rights and workers' rights uh, projects. I helped hundreds of immigrants naturalize, become U.S. citizens. I've helped dozens of victims of domestic violence self-petition under the Violence Against Women's Act uh, so they didn't have to stay in their abusive environment to remove the conditional uh, parts of their green card. And I helped restaurant workers who weren't getting paid their fair wages in front of the labor commissioner. And then I go to law school in Sacramento, actually, at McGeorge, which is closer to where Vanguard is at, I think. Um, And I worked at the Eviction Defense Collaborative, also in San Francisco, before I started at the PD's office. Um, At Eviction Defense Collaborative, I helped tenants who were being evicted from their homes file responses to their unlawful detainers and summons uh, improper. So kind of a rundown and summary of my experience. And how does that experience as a public defender inform you about the judicial system? I mean, I think being a public defender, you know, there's so many problems or concerns that face our client base. And when you're, and primarily everybody is indigent 
they obviously can't afford, cannot afford to hire their own counsel. And as we all know, the American legal system is tends to target. Uh, I, I don't want to say target. It it affects. It affects um, communities of color that are often marginalized and um, the most in the American legal system. And being a public defender, that is on the foreground every day, in and out of when you're representing a client and how the judicial system affects that very vulnerable client base, you see these things every day, how my clients that do not have the financial means to hire their own lawyer and how they're appointed as public defenders to represent them and how they can't afford to possibly bail or how their job stability is not stable and they're moving from one job to another. So, I, I mean, you just see these daily daily struggles with our client base all the time and how the judiciary or the judicial system affects these clients. It's just something you see every day. Can you describe your most difficult case and what that entailed? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to just pinpoint one most difficult case. I think I feel that all of my cases, the ones that went to trial and even the ones that don't go to trial, there's always a challenge every time. Um, I, I don't think there wouldn't be uh, in, a, in a situation where you're a public defender representing our vulnerable client base that I just referenced. Um, but I think one that has been more recent is a jury trial that I did with um, a young uh, African-American man. And he was accused of very serious charges, um, being part of a, a gang in San Francisco. And he was looking at life exposure in many different ways. I would say at least 20 plus different ways. And it was challenging because the allegations were so inflammatory. And there were so many racial components to the case. And, deal, and in San Francisco, the percentage of African-Americans in the city is only about 4.5% roughly. And so having to understand and convey to the jury the, the, the lack of racial understanding, I would say, with my jury to my client and how my client socializes um, was a challenge, especially with gang allegations. Um, it, became, it was a four-month jury trial. And also knowing that even though I might beat certain parts of the case, um, he was still looking at life in so many other different ways. It was a, it was an example of extreme overcharging, in my opinion, from the district attorney's office. And I think the outcomes from the outcome from the jury, in terms of the ultimate verdict or lack thereof, was a reflection of that. Um, so that was that was a really challenging case that happened about two years ago. And what was the ultimate result? Well, so he ended up getting convicted of probably one of the least serious charges. It was a, a gun possession. And then he was also originally convicted of shooting at an occupied vehicle. But that that charge was reversed from the trial court because there was an error in the jury instructions. So out of originally 20, about 22 charges that went to the jury, he was ultimately convicted of one. Um, the rest of the charge, yes, the rest of the charges hung, 
um, it was a three-part jury trial, meaning it was in three phases. I did three opening statements. I did three closing statements. Um, after all of that, and, and during this whole time, my client really lost, suffered and lost a lot. He had lost his grandfather. He had lost his uh, baby, who he'd never met. The baby was born and died after one day, and he'd also lost his mother, who was the closest person in his life. Um, after the, everything was resolved, after, I'm sorry, after it hung, after some a year or so of trying to negotiate a settlement, we ended up resolving the case uh, for seven years. So Michael's currently doing that time, and he'll be, I think he has about two more years left. So looking more broadly, what are your chief concerns about the criminal justice system? I sigh because I have a lot of concerns, honestly, and I don't know, and I wonder if anyone really knows how to solve the concerns. Um, the, the concerns I have are as basic as we don't have the presumption, the clients don't have the presumption of innocence. The legal system is not designed so that people have the presumption of innocence. It's just counterintuitive to the way I think society thinks when someone's arrested or someone's accused of a crime or even being involved in the legal system like as a petitioner in a civil case there's it, there's a quick judgment as to who's in the right and who's in the wrong based on our biases based on our personal experiences based on um could be our race could be our gender could be our social class um and I don't know how you get to the core of these things that would affect impartiality as one goes through and navigates the legal system. So that's a very lofty answer to your question. But I, I, I guess what I mean to say is I, I think once the legal system gets involved I, in a lot of ways, and I'm not just talking about criminal cases, but all areas, it's probably it's like the last step. Because what it shows is that there wasn't an ability to kind of resolve the situation before the legal system got involved. So, you know, speaking specifically about criminal law, race, class, um, are concerns in the legal system and how it trickles down every day from what's getting prosecuted, how people are treating when they're being prosecuted, how people are treated when they're being defended. Um, I mean, I could just go on and on. Um, so I, I don't, I think the concern for me is trying to figure out how do you get to the core of these injustices and where do you start so that it can be prevented and carried out so that there's rehabilitation and, and not, and there's not, there's no recidivism and, you know, productivity as we, as people move forward. So given all that, uh, what motivates you to want to become a judge? I see being a judge as just another step of my adult dedication to social justice and being a civil servant. As a judge, I can have the opportunity to take my experience and what I've seen and what I know and apply and apply the laws to what I think to be in a fair and independent fashion. I think you have a lot of, you know, judges are human. And over time, it, what judges are supposed to do 
um, or the intention of a good judge is to be fair and impartial and to be independent and to follow the law and to not favor a person or a side due to based on where they come from or what they have and to apply the protection of the law equally regardless of who you are, regardless of where your place is in life. And I want to continue to do that, taking everything I've known and everything I've seen um, to the bench if I were to become a judge. So I understand you're facing one other uh, candidate for an open seat. Is that correct? Yes. And what would you say is the major difference between yourself and the other candidate? I think there are a few. Um, One really important distinction is that because this is a local citywide San Francisco election, it is, and and the retiring judge chose to give this seat to the electorate, it is critically important that the San Francisco residents and voters participate in choosing who they want to be on their bench. And I am a San Francisco resident. I've lived here for just, I think, seven years this month, actually. Um, But I've also worked in San Francisco my whole, for over 20 plus years. I've volunteered over 5,000 San Francisco residents and voters. I live and work amongst this community in which I would preside over. I think that's important. And I think that's what makes me stand out um, in terms of just a basic residency requirement to live amongst the people that I would be making decisions over. I've been to, I've spoken to not just jurors, but witnesses and officers and people from all over the city and all different kinds of neighborhoods. And so I have a personal interest and desire that this city become better and always strive to become better and more safe and that there's less incarceration and less homelessness and, and people have job security and the jury, the, the, the jury, I mean, the, the, the voters should be able to um, have someone that comes from their community. But aside from that, I, I, I have a wide range of legal experience, not just with being at the public defender's office, but as I shared earlier, being at the, doing immigration law with the immigrant fam, immigrant communities, I'm bicultural. I speak I'm conversational Cantonese and Mandarin, um, and I've done eviction defense work. So these, my my work history is really a reflection of the current tempo and concerns of what's been going on in the city. I am a reflection of that, and so I think that makes me a better candidate in in this race. So as a prospective judge, what do you consider to be your greatest strengths and, and what are your weaknesses? I, I think just the way I am in terms of my, my constitution, I, I feel like I always want to be able to do more. Um, I think that's just something when you're involved in the legal system, there are restraints as to how much you can do. And I could see that as a prospective judge, that would still happen. Um, so kind of that personal frustration, I think, of wanting to do more could be seen as a weakness, but also could be seen as a strength. Um, I think that they can sometimes be the same thing. 
Do you believe that the composition of juries adequately and fairly reflects society at large? In San Francisco, I would say no. Um, I think this question would depend on potentially where you're at, but it's definitely not a secret that the concept of a jury of one's peers is really um, hard to actually put into practice and into fruition. Um, in San Francisco, we have a lot of residents that come from all different parts of the country and the world. Um, some are newer transplants and some are longer, been here longer. Um, some are native San Franciscans. Um, and so because we already know that the legal system is uh, prime, it affects disproportionately people of color and uh, marginalized communities and those that do not have financial means, then your jury composition is less likely to reflect the people that are being judged. So as, as, as having done over 50 jury trials, this is something that typically happens. Um, and, and, and not only do I know it and do a lot of lawyers know it, but people that are facing a jury trial know it as well. They come into the jury, they come into the courtroom and they see 150 people pile in and they see out of 150 people, maybe if you're lucky, two to three uh, African-Americans, maybe two to three more Latinos. And then the rest are majority racial co uh, composition. Um, class composition is, is not the same as our clients. So no, it absolutely does not reflect um, the society at large. Is there anything a judge can do about that? I don't, I mean, unfortunately a judge can't pick through the voter rolls and the registration rolls. Supposedly, I mean, it's all random. It just gets populated and then this list, this magic list shows up in the courtroom or to the jury room. Um, but I do think a judge can actually help with this. I've seen very good judges really inquire into jurors' backgrounds, and it's very common for jurors to kind of bemoan jury service. And I've seen very good judges do their best to empower the juror to want to participate in and explain how important it is to participate in this process. So I do think judges can can play an active role in changing um, the composition of juries that sit on the case. And I, I, I commend those ones that do that, and I aspire to do something like that as well if I were to get on the bench. Do you believe that there's an underrepresentation of women or people of color in the court system? And by that I mean, you know, the, the staff and the, the people that are working in the court system, not the people that are, you know, represented in the court system. So we're talking about not judges. We're talking about like, like support, like clerical. No, like, like judges staff. and lawyers and oh. such. I mean, yes. And I think um, there's different levels. I think I, I've only practiced in San Francisco. So in terms of like the court staff and I would say like court reporters, there's actually a, a fair representation of women and of color in the clerical uh, 
and court for staff, which is really lovely to see. I think they, it, 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 they have so much contact with the public, more so in a lot of ways than the judges, because they're dealing with the lawyers, they're dealing with jurors, they're dealing with witnesses, and, and so it's really great to see that. Um, I think it helps just remind everybody of the human element um, that comes to the court system. Now with judges, I think it's a little different. I do think that um, there's been a lot of progress in terms of um, representation of women on the bench. Um, and there has been some progress made in terms of judges of color, but it's, it's still disproportionate. Um, it's still very disproportionate. And, you know, I would have to break down the numbers, but I would say in the past, I think it was the past four years, the recent um, governor-elect uh, appointment to San Francisco was pretty commendable. I think there was about three, three judges, three women, women judges, maybe four. Um, so that's been great. Um, but if you still, and, and so it's getting better. It's balancing out a little bit, but it's definitely not equal and it's definitely not outweighed. <laughs> What factors are considered in granting and setting bail amounts for defendants? Uh, the tip, typically, the factors are whether the person is a flight risk, uh, and and one looks at the history of the defendant's um, bench warrant history, and also whether the person poses a public safety risk, and that uh, the, the evaluation is looking at the current offense as well as their history. Uh, or lack thereof in terms of future danger dangerousness. Um, in San Francisco, we have what's called the public safety assessment, and there's an value. It's a it's an outside entity that evaluates these two things and comes up with a number for each of those factors, and that number, and they make a recommendation whether the person should be released or not. Um, so that's kind of used as guidance, and it's for the judge to follow that guide, that, that recommendation or depart from it, either up, upwards or downwards. But those are the, the primary considerations is future um, dangerousness and whether they would appear in court again. And what do you believe are the causes of the high rates of minority incarceration? I think it goes back to the origins and the history of this country. Um, we are a young country for the most part and um, I believe that racial race, race issues and class issues that stem from the, just the origins of our country to be honest um, are still permeating into today and that's why when you ask me about what are my concerns about the legal system it's how are we how do we deal with a legal system that's premised on this history um, it's not a coincidence that the United States is the highest incarceration, has the highest car incarceration rates in, in the world. Um, that's not a coincidence. Um, so I, I think that's, that's the problem there. <laughs> is there anything a judge can do in this area? I do think there is. I think just the fact that one is a judge is mindful of this disparity and understands this history and appreciates it 
um, is in a, is one thing. Um, being mindful of it in terms of whether it affects the uh, the the policing of these communities when there's a violation of constitutional issues is how is how a judge can be involved. Um, a judge isn't the judge has to follow the law and can't throw things out just because a judge witnesses what they believe to be some sort of um, racial disparity when, when it comes to the legal system. But I think it's important, and I think there's a lot of advocacy um, around legal groups and community groups that are pushing the legal system for for judges, for example, to ask and allow questions that might relate to racial bias. Um, so it, it's when that happens, it's a judge can can help by allowing these questions by an attorney and allowing these questions to be asked to the jury about any racial bias and questions to witnesses. Um, that's how a judge can part- participate in making this change. What criteria do judges use when deciding whether to impose or affirm sentences that may extend outside of the standard ranges? The judges are guided um, by the um, California rules of court to look at various um, factors in terms of the offender as well as the nature of the offense. These factors are um, used with typically the probation department. That's how these are factors that are used. Um, and when sentencing memos uh, are prepared, a, a lawyer, the lawyers, both the prosecution as well as the, uh, the defense attorney, should look at these factors. Um, and that's what the judge would look at as well to decide whether to depart from the standard ranges. Uh, there is a limit. I mean, and when we talk about the standard ranges, in terms of California law, there's generally a spread. And so a judge can depart from these numbers, from the low term, the middle term, and the high term. Um, but that's, 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 those are the rules in which a judge would look at to either go upward or downward, or whichever number the judge chooses to select in terms of imposing a sentence. And what are the issues regarding alternative sentences for nonviolent offenders? I, I think the issues are is, is just extreme lack of resources and funding. Um, there are a lot of cases that where the crime or the offense or the, the reason of the conduct is stemmed in other things such as mental health, poverty, um, the, 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 the traumatic situation of the person growing up, um, lack of job stability, substance abuse. There's a lot of things that might affect a person, which results in the um, why the person gets wrapped up in the criminal justice system. So the, the, the issue would then be to try to get to the core of the problem um, and in hopes that in the future, this person does not reoffend and becomes stable, both emotionally, physically, and mentally and in terms of economically. But the problem is there's just a lack of resources. San Francisco has a lot of great collaborative courts um, 
options. We have Veterans Justice Court. We have a Mental Health Diversion Court. We have Community Justice Court. Um, we have a Young Adult Court. Um, we have Drug Court. We have quite a few alternative sentence, alternative sentence programs. And many people want to participate. But just because it happens to be a bad time, then one person might not be able to make it into the court because it's, um, it's at capacity. And this is a problem because then what happens is that the alternative for the person who wants to get help ends up just taking some sort of a plea deal without any supportive services. So all, there, all that's happening is there's another conviction on this person's record. They're released in this community without any supportive services just to kind of fend for themselves. When just maybe a month earlier, someone else was able to get into an alternative court system and receive that funding I mean, receive that support service, and maybe they have a higher success of not reoffending. So this is an issue that's um, a big concern. I, you know, as a judge, I, I don't have the ability to increase funding, but it's just something that I know is a problem, both as a public defender and I see would be a problem with, uh, you know, as a judge that I'd have to deal with. So explain to our listeners what a judge campaign actually looks like. What a judge can <laughs> well, a judge, a judge campaign looks exactly like a partial campaign, meaning even though judges are impartial, um, because you're running on a as an election, one is running just like a partial candidate, for example, as a supervisor or a district attorney, and you're doing all the same things that those folks would have to do. So that includes fundraising, getting endorsements filling out a lot of um, questionnaires for local clubs, unions, um, Democratic clubs, um, getting endorsements from elected officials, community members, going out into the community, doing merchant walks. I did that this morning. Um, getting fundraising so that you could print literature and window signs and just trying to reach as many voters as you can. Um, I have to hire campaign staff uh, and do everything just like any presidential candidate, even for that matter. Um, even though at the end of the day, once you win the judge election, you're you're no longer able to participate as a candidate in the future. There's, the, the, the canons do not allow judges to endorse a particular candidate in the future. So it's a very one-way street in a lot of ways. You campaign like a regular candidate, but you cannot give the return like a, a normal candidate. And and what kinds of activities are you doing in order to kind of promote yourself? I mean, everything. Um, today, I just was walking down the street in one of those very popular kind of foot traffic streets, the Visadero Corridor, and I just go into all the this street's really interesting because it's a lot of small local, small businesses, which I really like. And just go into these stores and ask if they could put my window sign up and try to talk to strangers. And I ask them if they're San Francisco voters. I tell them about myself. I have literature. I give that to them. I do morning visibility, going to high traffic, uh, public transportation stops, art stops, mini stops, hand out my materials. Give the voters a chance to meet me as a candidate. 
I'm going to, I think yesterday, Chinese New Year's coming up this coming Saturday. So a lot of the Chinese New Year events are kicking off. So yesterday I spent some time in Chinatown um, in front of kind of like they're called family associations, like the local family leaders of the Chinatown community. Um, so it just depends. There's a lot of different things, <laughs> meetings, um, different clubs are, have endorsement meetings. So I go to that. Uh, tomorrow morning, I'm going to a breakfast with the Labor Council. Um, right now, between there's only 44 days now from today to the election, which is uh, the primary for Tuesday, March 3rd. Um, now what's starting to pick up more are the Bar Association uh, meetings and endorsements. So I've already received the endorsement of the South Asian Bar Association, but now there's going to be uh, interviews with the Asian American Bar Association, uh, the Bar Association of San Francisco for a rating. Um, so there's now going to be some media outlets meeting uh, presentations and debates coming up. Who are some of your big endorsers at this point? Um, well, I'm very happy to say that I've been working really hard to get a lot of endorsements. Um, in San Francisco, we have 11 supervisors representing the 11 districts throughout the city. I have nine of the 11 uh, elected board of supervisors that are endorsing me. I have the San Francisco Democratic Party, the Harvey Milk Club, the San Francisco Tenants Union, League of Pissed Off Voters. Um, uh, let's see, I have, I did get the endorsement of the Longshoremen Union. Um, what else? At the local uh, San Francisco Bernie Kratz, the San Francisco Building and Construction Trade Council, which is another union. Also have the endorsement of um, former state senator Mark Leno, the newly elected district attorney, Chase Boudin, my public defender, of course, Manuel Raju, Matt Gonzalez. Um, I have quite a few community agencies that have endorsed me and some San Francisco judges. And how are the public responding to you? I mean, does, is the public kind of caught off guard by the fact that somebody's running for judge? Yes. <laughs> They're First, I've caught off that there's an election coming up in so soon. Um, no one even knew about it. I mean, very few. I mean, I would say, I would say, nine out of the ten people I interact with don't even know that there's a March election coming up. Um, in, in some ways, the November election was just yesterday, and people are still kind of recovering from that and then it went to the holidays. Um, so that's one big hurdle that I feel that I'm having to deal with is just that there's another election coming up. And then with the judge election, it's it's very unusual for the, the public to even know that they can vote for a judge or that it's even possible to vote for a judge. And then the added component for my race is that there's actually two other judge elections in, in the March election, two other open seats. So there's three total and having to explain that even more to the electorate um, is just another layer of complications. But yes, people are a little surprised. Yeah, it doesn't feel like there's going to be a presidential primary in 43 days either. So I, I, I hear you. Right. 
it's exactly. kind of surreal. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I mean, California did that because they wanted to be relevant with Super Tuesday. So I appreciate the effort, but uh, as a candidate, it's, it's good at that. I mean, it'll be over fast, but there's also, I, I anticipate there's going to be a lot of underwriting, undervoting um, in, in this election, and in particular my race. So the key is going to be to uh, identify who are likely voters and make sure that they come out and vote. Yes, yes. I mean, typically in a primary, there is a higher number of voters that come out, and in particular because of Trump, the experts anticipate a greater turnout than other primaries. However, I don't think people even realize the primaries are so early. They think that it's in June. Right. Right. So um, we're just about out of time, but uh, do you have some closing thoughts uh, to present to the listeners? Um, just I appreciate everyone listening. And if you're interested, please feel free to contact me on my website and check out my website and um, spread the news. Uh, my website is Tong for Judge with the number. And I'll spell it out at T-O-N-G, the number four, judge, J-U-D-G-E dot com. So I would invite everyone to come and check it out. Great. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, David. This has been Everyday Injustice, and you are listening to Public Defender Michelle Tong, who is a candidate for judge in San Francisco. And as she presented to everybody, the election is coming up very soon in 43 days, March 3rd. And here we are the middle of January already. So time is of the essence. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.